Knowledge is power, and we are all about empowering the mamas of the world. In each episode, we will unravel and interpret the latest research and evidence-based practices for pregnancy, postpartum, and motherhood. As mums and researchers ourselves, we have experienced firsthand the overwhelming complexity of information, myths, and those classic old wives' tales. I'm Dr. Renee White, and this is The Science of Motherhood. Hello, and welcome to episode 90 of The Science of Motherhood. I'm your host, Dr. Renee White. Um, This is a very exciting episode for those of you who have been hanging out for part two with our guest. It's around having difficult conversations with those people in your life. This is it. I've had a lot of DMs about the first part of our conversation, which was around creating boundaries during motherhood. And this is the absolute next step into it. But before I jump into this episode, I just wanted to highlight that it is our birthday, which is coming up soon for Fill Your Cup, which is so, so amazing. I'm so excited that we have been running this beautiful Doula Village for three years now, which is like just crazy. We're officially a toddler, I think. <laughs> in the business world. It's so, so amazing to work with just the caliber of women that are part of our our village here in Australia. For all of those who, you know, maybe this is your first time listening to this podcast, while I'm not in front of the microphone, I am the lead doula at Fill Your Cup, which is Australia's first biochemist-led doula village. What does that mean? So we actually focus on postpartum care. So that's after the birth um, of your baby. And we essentially provide evidence-based in-home services to mothers and families. We cook beautiful, nourishing meals for them. We provide, you know, three-hour sessions of, you know, just beautiful luxury (laughs) service where We're there to tidy up your house. We're there to hold your baby while you go and have a nice, long, hot shower. We are there to make you a warm cup of tea and sit with you while you have a birth debrief. We're there to hold your hand when you are having a really rough time and grappling with the transition from a woman to a mother. It is tough becoming a mother and it's something that a lot of our society wants to come and hold the baby and we are there to hold the mother. So if anyone is interested in learning more about our services, you can head over to our website, ifillyourcup.com and click on the postpartum care link. And we have got amazing, amazing um, services there for you to all enjoy and have a look at. As I was saying, this episode is a long time coming. We There was a prelude to it in episode 78 with Dr. Rebecca Ray, who is an amazing psychologist. She spoke to us in that episode around creating boundaries in motherhood, what those conversations look like. I mean, I, for one, am quite an assertive um, person, but when I dipped into motherhood, I don't know what happened. I felt like I'd lost my voice. I really struggled with how to advocate for myself. I was crippled by um, comparisonitis. I felt that everyone was judging me and, you know, maybe these are all thoughts living rent-free in my head. I don't know. Um, But, you know, I suffered a lot of anxiety around it because I think all we want to do is be the best mother that we possibly can for our children. And so, you know, the pressures of society and and judgment can be really, really tough. And so when we let those, I guess, intrusive thoughts in, or perhaps there are people within our circle that we 
you know, are struggling to manage. Our conversations with Beck in that episode were really, really thought provoking around how we can protect those boundaries and advocate for ourselves. So I highly recommend that you have a listen to that episode if you haven't already. And this episode and chat with Beck is an absolute continue on. So Beck released her newest book. I think she's got like six books now, which is just amazing. It's called Difficult People. And essentially the premise of the book is if you look at her um, setting boundaries book, it's kind of, that's the foundation. And then difficult people is like, okay, my boundaries are great and I can advocate for myself but there is this one person or two people in my life who are just not getting it. And they are the difficult people in your life. And it, the book is around learning about those people. It's also learning about the origins of, you know, why that person is difficult. I am always, always about the why, because I find that that just, provides maybe a little bit of empathy and understanding as to why that person is the way that they are. And then you can understand them a little bit better, but it's about creating those conversations with that person. But the thing that I love about this book, and we talk about this in the episode, is the fact that this book is not about being a silver bullet and perhaps how you can reconcile within yourself that perhaps that person's never going to change. And in fact, it's not your responsibility to fix that person. That, that is a great conversation that we have together. So if you have a difficult person in your life, I think this episode is going to be absolutely amazing for you to listen to. Take notes. Beck is just fountain of knowledge and I would highly recommend getting her book I really loved it I and I think I said this as well in the the episode I found it really challenging to read it's definitely not something that you would read before you go to bed Uh, (laughs) so just just think about that as well so without further ado here is Dr Rebecca Ray Hello and welcome to the podcast, the lovely Dr. Rebecca Ray, which is the first and last time I'll ever call you Dr. Rebecca Ray in this interview. (laughs) It's also a mouthful. You don't want to be saying that over and over again. (laughs) Yeah, say that six times fast. How are you? How are you going? I'm good. How are you? I am, as I said offline, absolutely bloody freezing here in Hobart. Mm -hmm. I've got my fingerless gloves on. I've got my heater cranked to full steam. How are things up north? On the mainland. They're a little warmer on the northern end of the mainland, or not so northern, but still in Queensland, (laughs) a little warmer. I can't wait. I've got a holiday booked actually for Hawaii later in the year and I'm counting down the days because I need need to defrost Beck. In constant Ugg boots central um, here in, in Hobart, so I need to defrost. Today... We have got you back almost for like a part two. We said in, I think it's episode 78, don't quote me on that. I don't have my list in front of me, which is poorly organized, Renee, but you know, that's how it is, people. You can find it on your favorite podcast apps, people. But we spoke to Beck about the book Setting Boundaries, which Mm -hmm. was phenomenal. I've got a lot of DMs. I think I wrote about it in a couple of our fill your cup um, village emails around setting boundaries and how I have really started so, so hard to implement that into my life because I feel like I was definitely one of those people where you think that you're setting boundaries Mm. and then you take a bit of stock and you go, oh, um, yeah, I think there's some improvement that needs to be made on that front. But in that last interview, we prefaced the fact that your newest book was coming out, mm-hmm. which for all those playing at home, I have it in my hand. <gasps> Difficult people. First of all, I bloody love. Did you, do you, I would know. Okay. Here's a, here's a different question. Yeah. How much influence do you have on the book cover? Do None. you come up? Oh, okay. 
So the book cover design, I have no influence over. Normally what will happen is I'll be given uh, maybe four options and those options will usually involve colour. So my publisher will come to me and say, here's the cover option that we've landed on. It's just lucky that I've loved all my cover covers. So yes. um, by the time it it lands with me, I'm like, yeah, sure. And then I'll go, uh, not my preference for colors are option one or option two. Yeah. Um, in this case, Difficult People was first presented to me as baby pink and baby blue, pale pink and pale blue. And I was like, absolutely not. We are not publishing a book that appears to be pitting genders against each other or potentially being on offer for non-binary or bisexual people. No. Um, oh, man. We're, we're not using those colours. They're just not appropriate for the um, topic and when I got it back, it was blue and orange. So I, I basically said, look, can we lean towards something brighter? Mm. Because I want people that have read Setting Boundaries, which, as you know, has a very bright yes, pink and orange colour. love um, those colours. Yeah. Yeah. So can we lean towards something brighter for difficult people mm. so that it seems like it's related, you know? But yeah. It's not really a part one and part two or a follow-up, but it's still related. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, in that last interview, we spoke about the setting boundaries, how we would do that. And we went through a few, I guess, scenarios as well. And I yeah. I, I wanted to do this again with difficult people. And we've, I've already <laughs> said to you offline that I felt this book was very challenging for me to read mm. for, you know, personal reasons. Mm. There was definitely times where I was like, I really want to read more, but I'm still processing and I'm, I actually need to be in the right frame of mind. It's not like, you know, a fiction book where you can just at the end of the day and like read it before bed. This is definitely not a read before bed thing. Don't read it before bed. No. Read it when you're feeling fairly stable emotionally. And perhaps read it when you've got emotional support around. One of the difficult things about writing about difficult people is that it's actually really confrontational. Yes. And I don't really give the reader much leeway in the book because my entire premise was that I can't get away from the fact that we can all be difficult people at different times. So one of the hard parts of reading the book is that Uh, at least the feedback that I've been given is that people feel incredibly validated in their experience Mm -hmm. with the difficult person in their life, but also they feel uncomfortable in the parts that make them look in the mirror themselves about their own behavior. I actually want to talk about that. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Sure. Let's get to that because that is, that's actually one of my questions. I think I've written down fuck, what if I am the difficult person? Honestly, I've been asked that in every single interview I've done about the book. I've had interviewers (laughs) quietly go, "Um, but what if I'm the difficult difficult person? person. (laughs) 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 Where's that chapter? (laughs) Okay, let's, okay, we're going to shelf that one because we'll get to it. But I think let's start off because I'm all, you know, this is my science brain definitions because Mm -hmm. I think that that is really important because when I was reading it I was like okay what is a difficult person you know how like for example how can you tell the difference between a difficult person and like someone who is just in your life and you're like okay, you are clearly having a very shit day and there's yep. a very shitty situ- situation kind of happening right now. How yeah. do we work through that process? Yeah. A difficult person, by definition from my book, obviously a difficult person is not a clinical term. So mm. it's not something you're going, you're going to go and find diagnostic criteria for. But in terms of how I've looked at it, I think a difficult person is someone who continually violates your sense of psychological safety with them by continuously transgressing your boundaries. Mm -hmm. And the operative word there is continuously. So we see this behaviour time and time again from difficult people and they often follow it up with emotional messiness. So that is they they experience dysregulated behaviour 
dysregulated emotions and they project that emotional messiness onto you and often blame you for it, leave you picking up the emotional debris of their of the fallout of however they express their emotions. Now, the difference between that and someone who's having a bad day or a bad life chapter is usually something along the lines of insight and willingness to look at their behavior and willingness to repair. So we can all behave poorly. We can all beha- we all do behave mm-hmm. ineffectively, including the clinical psychologist of 20 years experience who wrote the book um, <laughs> that you're trying to read right now. I have at times been a difficult person in my life. And I think The difference is between a card-carrying difficult person and someone who has the capacity to heal. It's the self-awareness that your behavior is not effective and it's the willingness to repair relationships where there's been fallout. Now, someone who's having a bad life chapter might not do that during the bad life chapter. Mm. So, Let's say you've got a newborn at home and you're waking up seven times a night because that baby's had a four-month sleep regression that you didn't even even know existed. Yeah. Um, that may be from personal experience. And you can't think straight or you're going through a divorce or you're caring for a terminally ill parent or you're just facing the cost of living crisis that oh we're in God. right now. Yeah. There's the stress on your shoulders will often influence your behavior if you don't have good coping strategies. And you can look like a difficult person to other people, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're a genuine difficult person that's Mm -hmm. going to continue to be like that. And generally what we see with people that are having a hard time is that they can identify that they're having a hard time and they're willing to say sorry. Mm. Um, they're willing to come back to the person that's interacted them in a harsh interacted with them in an ineffective or harsh way and do something about that. I love that. I love the fact that you've said they're having like a difficult life chapter. Yeah, because it's not only a bad day. Like you don't, if you're going around, don't read difficult people and say, and then go and meet one person on one day in one moment and go, pretty sure Dr. Rebecca Ray would call you a difficult person. You know, (laughs) I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't because we don't know them. Like we don't yeah. we don't know what's happening in their life and we don't know whether this behavior is going to continue. So I think yeah. we really need to look at predictability of behavior based on past behavior. Yes. Yes. And as you were explaining it as well, just that projection of emotion, like there have been situations where it, to me it's almost like, again, I'm a visual person, so it's almost that feeling of like they come into your life they drop a smoke bomb of emotion mm. and then they walk out the door and you're like, yeah. what the heck was that? Yeah. And like, why? Like, I can't see, I can't breathe. Like, and and then apparently that's okay. And then the next time yeah. you see them, it's peaches and cream. And you're like, hold on a minute. Can we just talk about that smoke bomb that you like jumped on me on Tuesday? Like, yeah. what was and didn't that? Take, and didn't take responsibility for. Yes. <laughs> and didn't yes. manage. Because difficult people often don't have the skills to be able to regulate themselves effectively. And that can be for a number of reasons. Either they were raised by grown ups who were ineffective themselves or were difficult people themselves. And therefore, these children have landed in adulthood as uh, emotionally incompetent adults who don't know how what to do when they're feeling big feelings and then making those big feelings the problem of other people. And so, I mean, I guess in that case, I'm not making excuses. I'm just saying that we can usually assume that a difficult person is someone who's been raised by difficult people or had a really difficult childhood or traumatic childhood and or they've arrived in adulthood and been traumatized in some way because sometimes you can have a fine childhood you know an unremarkable childhood what psychologists would say was a fairly normal or unremarkable childhood you know nothing major happened to damage their psyche but you end up in adulthood and you experience domestic violence or you go and work in emergency services or you go and work with the military and you become and you go and get deployed to a war-torn country and you come back a different person. Mm-hmm. So I've actually seen that quite a lot when I was in clinical practice and the vast majority of my work was with police and current serving and retired military personnel and I would hear from their partners so often 
um, you know, I married this person and yeah. now I'm living with this person and they're completely different. Mm, I, I did have a question around why people, you know, are difficult, like that origin story around. Yeah. So <clears throat> I guess also I, I just wonder, so almost like I don't want to pigeonhole people, but there's that category of like, you know, raised by difficult people, haven't got the tools and hasn't haven't been modelled how to regulate their emotions. And then I, I wonder, and I'm curious to know, like when, so there's that kind of category and then that latter category where you have that unremarkable kind of childhood and then mm. you have that trauma event. It What happens in that scenario? Do you not have the tools to process what has kind of happened? Like how, I'm just trying to work out what that disconnect is. Yeah, so generally the research tells us that about 10% of people that are traumatized will go on to have post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. So there's a the vast majority of people who are traumatized won't. So they do right. have the skills. They do have the coping strategies um, to be able to manage themselves. But the people who go on to have clinically significant symptomatology around trauma mm -hmm. and the after effects of that trauma are usually the ones we'll be talking about when it comes to describing someone who experienced something in adulthood that appeared to change their personality or change how they were in their interpersonal relationships. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense to me now. I want to switch gears. I want to talk about the archetypes, which this don't is test what... me on them because I don't know. There's like nine. <laughs> I know. It's like one, two, three, four. Yeah, there's nine, a lot. Six, seven, eight, nine. There's nine. But this is one of the things that I absolutely, I feel, I think I said this to you maybe in the last interview. I almost feel like you've written books for people like myself, Beck, because I was <laughs> like, oh, she's categorized everything and there's this beautiful chapter where you can kind of go okay I feel like I'm dealing with like a clinger so where is that section in that book and yeah. the other thing that I love for all those playing at home on page 120 you've got a difficult person checklist which is where you can identify if you think that person is a difficult person. I bloody love that. I, I love tangible books. You know where you get your pen and paper out? You're like, okay, let's work through this. Let's <laughs> let's go through all of the checking. But are there, okay, I'm not going to test you on every single one of them. Obviously. Thank you. That would be incredibly. <laughs> that would be mean. That would be incredibly awful. But can I touch on a few? Yeah. A few that I kind of feel like probably show up more often than not mm. for our audience you mm. know to me there's two there's the plasticine mm -hmm. difficult person mm -hmm. particularly if I'm just like looking down at the book you know plasticine behaviors fawning eruption self-neglect mm -hmm. I feel like that kind of comes up we get people who and maybe it's um, the person themselves who is the fawning person, mm -hmm. particularly with mums, we, you know, might want to be pleasing others around yeah. this newborn space as well. Like, it's okay. Like, I'm just going to let everyone, you know, come and visit me and, you know, I'll have to entertain them and I've got to be keeping up with the Joneses and stuff like that. I think, um, I've had a couple of friends who I would identify as that particular personality and I look at it and go, what the heck? Like, let's start having some conversations around, you know, you not doing that because yeah. you, I can I see the after effects where you are absolutely cooked yeah. and you're emotionally like just drained and then that goes on for another week because you're still trying to pick up the pieces so yeah. can we start there and then I'm sure. going <clears> to switch to the controller because I think that that's another. <laughs> um, we're going from one side to the completely Yes, other. I was yeah. like, let's do the pendulum yes, swing. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Um, so one of the things about the plasticine, and I think this is why the book can be so confronting, is people just get to the plasticine arch archetype, which is the first archetype that I talk mm -hmm. about, and they think, oh, I see myself in that. I can't yeah. possibly go forward because this is too confronting. <clears throat> Then in chapter eight, 
or nine, I actually talk about fawning as a coping strategy rather than it being just uh, the archetype of a difficult person. Yeah. If if you fall into the plasticine archetype, then it means that this is your entire personality, you know, mm-hmm. like not just how you're coping with a difficult period in your life. So I, I just want to say that for any new mums that are listening or mums-to-be who are struggling with um, people dictating what you do with your body during pregnancy, um, one of the things that I think one of the things that is most confronting is when you decide to slap a label on yourself without knowing the full picture. And I kind of wish those two explanations were closer together in the book, but because of the way we had to edit it, they're they're a few chapters apart. So many people can end up in a, a brand new situation in their life, like becoming a mother. So we have this period of matrescence and you're finding your identity again, and you can fall back on coping strategies that you've used in times of extreme stress. And one of those can be fawning. For listeners at home who have not heard the term fawning, it's essentially a more, I guess, clinical term that's used to describe people-pleasing. Now, fawning is kind of people-pleasing on steroids. It's when it's when you're actually turning yourself inside out and upside down to appease someone else or to make sure that they're happy or to make sure that their needs are met. And usually the the way it becomes problematic, because you might be thinking, well, what's wrong with that? You know, like I'm just being a nice person. I'm just being a good person. Yes, fawning can be a relational strength, but only if your needs are met first. If your needs are not met first in a chronic way, what's going to happen is you're going to end up as a simmering volcano that will eventually erupt at some point. So you'll simmer, 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 and then finally you'll peg a bottle of nail polish against the kitchen cupboard above your husband's head. Um, fairly specific example. That's because I know someone <laughs> that did that um, <laughs> after a long period of warning. Now, the plasticine archetype is essentially someone who operates in the world from a place of fawning. So that means that they are prone to giving away any power over their own needs um, and instead they spend all their time and all their personal resources meeting other needs, neglecting themselves until finally they erupt. And often that eruption feels like it comes out of nowhere for other people. Everything can be can look like it's going along fine, and then bang, yeah, they make it very clear that things are not okay. And the people that have had access to their resources up until that point can often feel very shocked at that because they think, "I didn't know that there, that there was a problem because you actually never told me there was a problem." This is why the plasticine is an archetype in difficult people archetypes. You might think, well, that's not problematic for other people if they just get to do whatever they want around this person. Sure, it doesn't sound problematic, but the plasticine will end up being quite difficult to be around because they'll either erupt and make life very difficult for you because they've not taken responsibility for their own needs for so long prior to that, and or you'll never know where you stand around them. So you'll ask them what they want. You'll be trying to make sure that you're in a place where everyone's needs are counted for and you'll get responses from them that will sound like, I don't really mind. I'll just do what you want to do. But they actually do really mind. They actually do have needs that need to be considered, but they refuse to speak up for those needs. And that's where we start seeing the problems in relationships. You can actually start feeling quite anxious about the plasticine and almost feel like you need to take responsibility for them because they won't take responsibility for themselves. And so it becomes very difficult. Now, fawning as a coping strategy, though, is generally milder. So we'll see it not as someone's whole personality, and we'll generally see it as a coping strategy during a period of life stress. Once you get to whatever chapter it is um, (laughs) in the section after uh, difficult behaviours, then that's where I actually describe fawning and how it's used as a coping strategy and and not to panic that you're a card-carrying difficult person if you identified with the plasticine. I mean, many, many things that happen with the archetypes is that as you read them, you'll see, and as you read 
the whole middle section of the book, which describes 45,000 difficult behaviours, not, <laughs> not 45,000, but there's a lot, you can see yourself in many of them. And yes. that can be really confrontational. But again, I want to come back to we can all behave ineffectively and knowing what those behaviours look like and what they feel like to receive can really help with your self-awareness, but they it doesn't make you a card-carrying difficult person. Now, mm. when we go to the other side of the pendulum, which is the controller, Oof. we're talking about <laughs> someone. This is where I was like, okay, let's just... Oh, uh, <laughs> same, I was essentially writing that category about myself. Um <laughs> So the controller archetype is led by anxiety. So generally they're a type A personality who has very strong feelings about how things should be and, and, you know, will be in some cases. And usually that's to placate their own anxiety. So what happens is they can be incredibly high functioning and very, very capable, sometimes over responsible. So they'll go in and try to direct a situation to make sure it goes a certain way. And that's to make sure that their own anxiety can actually stay in a level where they can actually cope with it. Now, what, what the controller runs the risk of doing is violating the boundaries of other people because they don't check in with other with what other people need. And if other people need a bit of flexibility and the controller feels threatened by that because we don't do flexibility, sorry, yeah. um, then it can mean that there's a clash and the controller will generally fall on the side of it's much safer for me to not offer flexibility because then I know how things are going to go. The problem with the controller, though, is that it can escalate to a point where other people actually get quite anxious around them and don't feel able to just be themselves Mm -hmm. because they're constantly looking out for what the controller's rules are. (laughs) So they're looking like, what am I allowed to do and what am I not allowed to do again? Because this person, the controller, is going to have a problem surely with something that I choose to do because they have all these rules around how something should go. Absolutely. And I want to talk about like <clears throat> with each one of those archetypes, mm. let's just, um, for example, say that we are not either one of those. Yeah. We can <laughs> all be elements that. of everything. Just pretend that. <laughs> we can all have features, but it doesn't mean you actually meet the full personality style of that archetype. Yeah, absolutely. If, for example, we had someone in our lives that was in one of those categories what are the types of conversations that or starting points that you could have and I think the other thing that I wanted to ask also is maybe around expectations Mm. I'm so sure in the book there was um a part and I don't know if I've actually tagged it but it was almost um it was almost like you were saying that. Like no, you, I was saying that. I know you, what you're going to you, say. I was saying that sometimes you can't expect the difficult person to change at all. Yes, like how <laughs> I think this this is something, and maybe because I am part controller, is the fact that you want to have these conversations with these people because, uh, to me, it's always that case of like, I love you. I value your relationship because if I didn't, then like it doesn't matter to me type of thing. And I want to see you as a better person because I can see that this is so crippling for you. Yeah. How do you have those conversations? First of all, how do you start? But then also how do you, I guess, reconcile with yourself that Mm. even if you have that conversation, there is absolutely no guarantee that you are going to get to that point with that person or they they don't they're not necessarily going to change like how do you do yeah. that Beck? <laughs> that is the yeah. that is the golden is that like the golden question of like people? of the entire book yes, yes. You're like, um, oh my god yeah uh, when i first went to write the book my publisher said um can you write a book on like just the that narcissist that we all have in our life and i said no i can't sorry and she was like oh come on like you know just that really person that makes life really hard for us and I said I'm not writing a book on narcissists because um a those books already exist and also 
you can't change them. So, um, no, I'm not right. And she's like, oh, all right. So here's the example. She's giving me an example of someone she was <laughs> struggling with. She, my polish is extremely adept at twisting my arm. And so she's super diplomatic and she appeals to my own narcissism. And is like, I just know that you could write this particular thing. And I but end up getting a She's read your setting boundaries I'm book. Like, I know, she's, right? She's and on she's the inside. Like, <laughs> yeah, she's so, totally on the inside. And I get off the phone going, why did I just agree to write that book? Like, I don't know how this happened. But one of the things that I said to her in that very first conversation is you do understand that if I write this book on difficult people, then um, at no point in the book am I going to offer a solution for changing that person. Because one of the characteristics of a difficult person is that they are very unlikely to A, have insight into their behavior or any kind of awareness. And if they do have insight, they probably don't care mm. because they, they don't care because they don't have access to coping strategies that are more advanced or they're getting benefit out of that behavior because they're okay. getting something from you or they're getting um, the chance to uh, stay the victim in what psychologists call secondary gain. So secondary gain is the psychological experience of getting benefit out of something negative that you're experiencing. For example, I used to deal with a lot of people that were going through workers' compensation and uh, after a long time of being unwell or being debilitated in some way, there can be secondary gain out of that. Like you don't need to go through the anxiety of finding a new job. You get lots of attention from being in that, being the victim, being unwell in some way. There's so many aspects to secondary gain that are both psychological and behavioral. And so there is a difficult person in your life that might be experiencing these behaviors. They're probably getting something out of it, whether you can see that or not. So they're not likely to want to change that behavior. And so when it comes to having the conversation, I always get asked this too, how do you say it? My answer to that is always, it depends because mm -hmm. it depends on who you are and who this person is and what your relationship is with that person. It's very different the way you would talk to your boss um, versus how you would talk to your brother. And so I can't always say, here's the words that you use to start here's that conversation. Yes. <laughs> I was Although, I was furiously looking. I was like, where where is that in the book? <laughs> yes, but there is like the entire book is full, full of, um, sorry, the entire middle of the book is full of scripts for spe spe specific behaviours, but you need to still adapt them for the dynamics of your relationship. Mm. And so one of the things that I would encourage people to do at the outset is first of all to think about, uh, is this person available for this conversation? And what I mean by that is having a conversation about someone's behavior and its impact on you requires them to enter a certain level of vulnerability. Mm. And vulnerability makes people feel, oh, many people, it. not us, <laughs> because we're used to it, right? There's so many of us that work in the personal growth field yeah. and are so committed to our own personal growth that we actually feel a bit ripped off if we don't get vulnerable. Like you and I, before we even start recording, we're bang into the vulnerabilities about yeah. our lives, <laughs> like straight up, because that's what feels meaningful. But for yeah. many people who are not like us, being vulnerable actually feels incredibly unsafe emotionally. So if this person is not available to get vulnerable and you know that because of the dealings that you've had with them prior, they either are very good at being able to change the topic or they simply just palm off responsibility for their behavior to some external situation, then I want you to consider whether the energy to do that or to call them in to that conversation is actually worth it. Because sometimes if you try to have that conversation and you are dismissed, then it can actually make you feel even worse. Now, that's wrapped up in the fact that my first line advice is always to just set the boundary. Like you still have to have had the conversation about where your boundaries lie. Um, because if, especially when we're talking about emotional boundaries, if we're talking about physical and sexual boundaries, then we're also probably talking about dangerous people, right. um, people yeah. that, you know, maybe not like touching pregnant bellies. We're not necessarily talking about dangerous people there, but emotional boundaries are so much more subtle. They're intangible. And so they do need to be communicated. Otherwise, 
you can make an assumption that someone else is a mind reader and they're just not. So yes, communicate the boundary, but if you then want to call someone in about their problematic and long-term behavior, I want you to understand that you need to do so with the understanding that that may go nowhere. That conversation may result in no change, or it might result in acknowledgement in that during that interaction, but then you'll still see no change afterwards. So you can feel like I like I, I've set boundaries with my mum around conversations about my my body. So she has a quite um destructive relationship with her own body, as as did her mother probably her mother's mother, my my grandmother's mother. And so the, the conversation is often around diets and things like that. I've made it very clear to my mum at least 10 times now, and this is like verbally, not just implica- implied, that uh, diets and bodies are not, are not available for any conversation around that. Great. Nice acknowledgement. Thanks very much. And yet the next time I'm in conversation with my mum, she'll often preface a discussion with, oh, I know you don't really like talking about these things, but blah, 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 blah. Um, now, this is what happens with people who don't have the capacity or willingness to grow at a level that you would like them to. And so at that point, you need to be able to make a decision for your own self, mm-hmm. your own energy, your own time, your own, own emotional well-being around how often you'll labor the point with them. And perhaps at that point, you need to develop other strategies. Like if the person is not going to honor the boundary, then what are you going to do to keep yourself safe? My parents aren't bad people. They're emotionally incompetent people, but they're not bad people. They don't have bad intentions, but that doesn't mean that their impact is not negative. And so if I then keep coming at the situation, expecting them to change, I'm the one who's bashing my head against a brick wall. I'm... I know what's going to happen. I have many decades of experience (laughs) at this by now that if I keep coming at them and getting shitty, that it's the same as it always is, the problem is mine. Mm. It's not theirs because I know they're not going to change. So what am I doing about it? Am I going to keep throwing a tantrum over it or am I going to find other strategies to be able to manage myself so that I can restore my own psychological safety? Yeah. And I I want to talk about that because I think that's, I've actually written this point down. So one of the things is how to react, feel, self-regulate and Mm -hmm. set boundaries. Mm -hmm. And I spoke to you about the whole setting boundaries thing, the fact that I've done many, many, many <laughs> years of therapy. One of the things that I, and I have practiced this for years now, is the that those exact steps, mm. reacting, feeling, self-regulating and implementing mm. the boundaries part. It took me a really long time to harness the reaction mm. because you default to that, um, what well, I did, I defaulted to <laughs> when I first met my husband, he was like, every time there's like a like serious situation, your first reaction is to cry and your second reaction is to scream. Mm. And I was like, that's just how I'm built, you know? Yeah. I bet yeah. it was um, my psychologist and I'd love to know what your coping strategies are with, <laughs> if you're happy to share them. Yeah. But one of the things that um, I utilized was I used to carry around this little um, notepad. It was like super, super tiny. Mm. And um, because I, when I would have a fight with my husband, I would be like, you are all like in my head, you are awful. I hate you. Why are you doing this? Clearly you don't love me. If you did love me, you would be doing this. And so what um, my psychologist said to me is when you are in moments or like you have a really loving moment or like something great happens or just write down your thoughts in this notepad Mm. about all the reasons why you guys are in this relationship. 
like why you love him, why he loves you, all of those things. So what I would have to do is I had to practice this because I'm a visual person. If we got into like, if he really pissed me off, I would actually get up, leave the room, grab my little notepad and I would start flicking through the pages and I would yeah. start reading yeah. all the things. This is why you love this. And I'm again, we're not talking about like abuse and dangerous people. Like let's preface yes. that. Yes. But, um, these were just, you know, you'd had an argument about picking up the towels around the house or like just stuff, you know, just stuff. And that was my thing about how to cope with the reaction and start feeling and self-regulating. And I'd be like, where is this coming from? Am I actually pissed off about the towels or have I not processed some other thing mm. because I was in that fawning category where I was like self-please, like a people pleaser, people pleaser. Irrational. Yes. Yeah. What, what are your strategies, Beck? I, <laughs> I think, I think those strategies that you're using are really advanced. I, I'm not that advanced when it comes to coping in the moment. <laughs> I'm no not, <laughs> I'm not, I couldn't, I couldn't, I wouldn't have the presence of mind or at least I wouldn't take it seriously. So if I had a notebook, I would read it and go, that's bullshit. Like, and and, it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I always go for self-regulation first. So okay. I'm shifting to calm my nervous system because my nervous system is quick to react. I'm a complex trauma survivor. It will always be like that. So that means when I'm triggered, um, and when I say it will always be like that, I'm not saying it will always be like that for you. If you're listening and you're a complex trauma survivor, I've just done, I've done years of therapy. I've done lots and lots of work. And I understand that as a result of the way my brain is wired, certain things will trigger me quickly and that's the way it is. Yeah. So I have, uh, my response is first to, to manage my nervous system. And usually I will breathe and I will remove myself from the situation. So I'm always operating from a place of um, I, I would rather not say something that's going to cause damage if I can help it. So remove myself from the situation might just be going to a different room. It might be choosing not to react. Um, I have a fantastic therapy face thanks, thanks to years of clinical work where I can literally just not, not react. But what I will then do afterwards, because I'm also an exceptional ruminator, um, <laughs> I, maybe I was a cow in a previous <laughs> life, but um, I I will then play what happened over and over again. And I run the risk of making what happened mean something negative about my worthiness as a, mm. as a human being. And the way I get around that, well, I don't get around it. So that occurs. And then the way I'm, I respond to that is I have, um, I'm very lucky to have a support crew around me of just super advanced humans, just so emotionally evolved that I can go to any one of them at any time and say, so this happened, and I will immediately receive a validating response, a check-in, are you okay? Um, do you want to talk this through? Do you want solutions or do you want to just be heard? Those types of things. It, it does help that one of my best friends is a psychiatrist, the other is a psychologist. Um, so I kind of have <laughs> therapy on tap, but yeah. I also am surrounded by people, sometimes people that I've never actually met in real life in my DMs on Instagram, of people that are just emotionally evolved and so interested and curious about the human experience that I can be held through my pain. Um, and so I know the person to go to depending on what's happened and who it's been with. Mm -hmm. And so my coping strategy is first to regulate my nervous system and then to go outside to get reassurance that I'm not who my mind is making me think I am mm -hmm. because my mind will always be incredibly harsh and mean and destructive. Now, it used to be like that a lot of the time. And now it's only like that. It's much nicer in my head these days. I, I love <laughs> aging because I just give less fucks. Like I honestly yeah. don't care. But when I'm triggered, it's different. So when we're talking about genuine triggers, that's my process is self-regulate first. I, I, I'm always intellectually understanding this feeling will pass, but I can also be 
you know, psychologists can have a tough time with this. I'm like, oh, breathing bullshit. All right. Like, yes, I'll do my square breathing, whatever. I, I just get so frustrated with having to use techniques, you know, to, to manage myself. But I start with my nervous system and that's why I then go external because I can't trust what my mind's saying in that moment. So I need another voice outside of me of someone who I am psychologically safe with to be able to say, hmm, that sounds like it was really shitty. And I want to come back to remind you that you are this, this, and this, and this. And I think you've done really well in coping the way you have. I love that. Well, I was talking to you offline earlier about the fact that I was part of a, um, it was kind of like a women's circle centering the mother a few weekends ago. And one of the things that they did recommend quite highly is having what they call a listening person. Mm. When you've had, those difficult scenarios and you it's I think you know as humans we need connection and we Mm. need communication and we need to feel safe as you said it's that person who validates where you're at like that is something you know just going you're not crazy it's okay Mm. yeah like just park those destructive thoughts because you're really not that person it's okay and it is all it would all it takes is like a 30 second conversation yeah around or even just a message like most of what I'm talking about is done via text message or yes um, like a written message I mean I do I will talk on the phone if it's gotten if it's a really significant trigger but sometimes it's just a quick text you know and that's that's enough to feel validated. It's enough to feel like you've got it off your chest. Mm. But for, for our listeners, I also want to just mark the fact that this has been years in the creation of, you know, a circle of safety. Like I, and and this is as a result of just having super excellent boundaries as well. So, yeah. um, you know, being in my forties, I've created who I want around me. There's not, there's really not too many people left that, uh, I actually allow to have access to me that have the capacity to trigger me. But there are a few because for whatever reason, I don't want to cut them off completely. Mm-hmm. And um, I then have these strategies around to be able to manage them because I think it's in the book, I do definitely talk about you will cut, there, there does come a time where you need to make a decision around the fact that as an adult, you get to be the boss of who gets to continue to have access to you. And I think for people pleasers, that can be a really difficult truth to swallow that you're allowed, you have permission to remove someone from your life or at least to drastically change the way they get to have access to you. You know, you might go from seeing them multiple times a month to sending them a birthday card once a year, you know, yeah. if that's going to make you feel safe again. And I think that's a crucial part of this puzzle is that you get to say, um, we've reached the end of the road. I'm not actually going to be available for you to continue doing this to me. But you also get to decide that actually, no, that doesn't fit my boundaries to cut this person off entirely, but I am going to take steps to keep myself psychologically safe. And I'm allowed to do that too, even if the person has opinions around that, which they will. Difficult person, difficult people generally have strong opinions when their access to the person that they've been harming is changed. I feel like, I feel like this conversation is just the universe and planets aligning for me, Beck. I (laughs) had, it's so funny when you say, you know, in adulthood, you get that opportunity to make those decisions because I had to have a very difficult conversation with my daughter over the weekend because a particular um, person in my life, we are no longer friends. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have the strength to discuss that with her mm-hmm. when it all happened. Like I'm just picking up the pieces now mm-hmm. from it. And she just randomly asked me about this person and I said, um, you know, we're no longer friends. And it absolutely blew her mind mm-hmm. and she got she got very upset about it um, because she was just grappling with the concept. I mean, she's about to turn six. So 
you know, she was grappling with the concept of like, how can you do that? Mm. But aren't you friends? And she's like, why? She just kept saying, why, why, why? Mm. And I said, because, you know, that person wasn't respecting me and Mm. they weren't respecting my boundaries. And I hope one day that you will understand that, you know, there'll come a point in your life where the people that you are friends with now are not necessarily going to be the people that you are going to be friends with for life. Mm. And if people continually, at coming back full circle, if people continue, it's this continuous behaviour of not respecting your boundaries and you present it to them time and time again and you have these difficult conversations with them and they continue to smile and nod at you and tell you things are going to get better or ignore you, that you go, actually, you know what? I'm done. I'm done, yeah. I can't actually do this anymore. It is too emotionally exhausting. Yeah. And we're going to just have to go our separate ways. But that can the the I'm done part because we're socially conditioned to be good girls, um, and we're socially conditioned that uh, friendships should last forever, relationships should last forever. You know, we're given this messaging so subtly in kids' books. Um, we're yes. given uh, we're given it from very uh, from a very early age. I think that we are used to being made the bad person if we choose to let a relationship go um, and that we must have done something wrong or we're being bitchy by doing that. But it's simply when you come back down to it, I think we need to look at the ramifications of humans uh, walking alongside other humans and understand that we're not always behaving in ways that support that continual journey together and also just by the very nature of existing we don't always grow at the same rates or in the same directions and that doesn't mean that anyone's done anything wrong it just means that you're no longer in a place where the friendship's going to serve either of you yeah absolutely one second my dog is just trying to get out (laughs) sure Yeah, I absolutely agree. But it, it's that concept like, you know, she's in prep and <laughs> she does, uh, like at that age, she's like, oh, you know, so-and-so is my best friend. And then, you know, two days later, it's like, oh, she's not my best friend anymore. Only this person's my best friend. And it's interesting because, I mean, I know I was like that when I was at primary school, but it's yeah. also I've been trying to talk to her about the fact that, like, that's great, but, you know, you can have more than one best friend. And, yeah. you know, it's okay if so-and-so is having a rough day and that you're, quote, unquote, not best friends. Like, it's mm. that's all okay. We're humans, yeah. you know? Absolutely. Um. I am just looking at my scenarios. I think we've got time for like one scenario that I sure. <laughs> that I want to go through. Probably something that we come across as doulas, I would say, in our practice. And it's around the postpartum planning stuff. And it probably, it, it is so stereotypical, I say this, but equally we do have a lot of our clients who talk to us about this. And I'd love for you to make some comments around how to tackle this particular person in your life. But it's that family member who consistently undermines you and your decision making mm. as a parent. Mm. Um, but you know, perhaps they um, mock you in front of your own children. Yeah. Oh, isn't mummy so silly? You know, things like that, like really passive aggressive behavior. How do you tackle that behavior? <laughs> if at I think, all. No, I think it's worth tackling. Um, but what you do in front of your children might be different to what you do when they're not around. So I think anything we choose to do in front of our children needs to be thought through because we also want to make sure that we're modelling for our children behaviour that we are happy to look back on. Um, I mean, we can't be perfect. No one's perfect. But if you know that this person is consistently being passive-aggressive and they're undermining you in some way, 
um, or they're being problematic in the face of your parenting choices when you're around them, then you can plan for that interaction to be uncomfortable for you in some way and perhaps consider not having a conversation with them in front of your child. Now, it depends on what the situation is. So if we're talking about, let's say someone says, um, you know, it's a grandparent or something and they say, oh, it's a secret. Don't tell mommy that. And you're in front of your child, then you might very clearly say, actually, we don't have secrets in this family, but we do have surprises and, you know, that kind of thing. That's fine. But if you think that you're going to become dysregulated yourself, because, you know, this has happened 15 times before and you can't, you're just so sick of being told that, when your child has big feelings, you should smack them or something like mm. that, then you might plan to actually have a conversation with the person in question outside of hearing range of your child, mm. because that then means that you can actually talk in adult language to actually have that conversation and say, it's inappropriate when you undermine my attempts to manage my ch- my child in this particular way. I'm We all want the best for our children, and I'm sure that you have strong feelings about how you parented. Um, And I think every parent is trying to do the best that they can for their child. My choices for my child are not a reflection on your parenting. Mm. They're not designed to make you feel uncomfortable. They're simply what I feel is best for my child. Um, What what matters for me, though, is not so much the words that you say. You, I mean, as long as you're not being a dick. Like, the rules yeah. are don't be a dick. Like, <laughs> yeah, don't try to be respectful. Yeah. <laughs> try to be respectful and kind um, and, and speak the way you would like to be spoken to. What matters for me, though, is after that, what happens? Mm-hmm. Like, are you still seeing the behaviour being repeated? Because if you are, then you've got to make a decision around how much time you spend with that person, what the time is going to look like whether or not if it's involving your child, then you're making sure that the child has supervised um, contact with that person, that kind of thing. So I I think it's more like, do you bring it up with someone that's been like this the entire, for the entire life of your child and the entire life of you as a mother or as a parent, then you probably have other decisions to be making, not just what you say in the conversation, because again, we're coming back to, if you have a conversation, they probably don't care. Yeah. They probably know that they're making you uncomfortable. I mean, most people have some interpersonal understanding unless they have um, some limitation like they're on the spectrum and therefore they have a completely different interpretation. Then we're talking about something different. We're mm-hmm. not talking about people that are intending to be difficult at all. Yeah. You actually need to look at how, if, if we're dealing with a neurodiverse person, we need to look at how you actually explain things to them in a different way. That's a different conversation completely. But if we're dealing with someone that is not neurodiverse and they have showed themselves to be problematic, then probably the least of your worries is how you actually say it. And instead, you need to be focusing on, if I've seen this this many times, and I'm pretty sure they're pretty clear on the fact that I don't like the fact that they undermine me, then I need to be making decisions around what happens in the future with them. Mm. So much of this is taking responsibility for our own experience, right? It's Exactly. And this was the conversation with my publisher. Yes, I'll write that book for you, (laughs) but you do understand that the end of that book or that every, you know, the end of every chapter pretty much is like, okay, yes, here I can teach you the most perfect communication in the history of the world. You can be the Dalai Lama and this person's still not going to change, right? So if they're not going to change, we need to take responsibility for our own experience in this relationship. If we continue showing up in the same way and participating in the same behavioral pattern, because what Mm. happens with difficult people that we've known for a long time is we get into these behavioral cycles they do this, you do that. And around and around we go. So if you keep participating in that cycle, you're continuing to experience the same results. Absolutely. Dancing the dance, I like to call it. 
Mm. You need to you need to change the music and do a few different steps. Yes, there's that <laughs> section in the book that I call difficult dancing. It's exactly how it goes. <laughs> I think um, my psychologist gave me uh, the recommendation very early on um, in our relationship. Just trying to recall the author's name. Is it Harriet Lerner? Yes. 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 The Dance of Anger. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I was like, has, has this person been living in my head? Like, yeah. oh my God. But yeah. yes, it is that classic thing of like, you need to stop dancing. Absolutely. They know the steps to it. Get off the floor. Get off the floor, people. Yeah. I know you love to boogie, but get off yeah. the floor. <laughs> yeah. Well, Beck, it has been bloody amazing chat again. I love having you on the podcast. I feel like it's a mini therapy session, a mini <laughs> self-awareness session, and then we get to talk about your love for my hometown now as well. Yes, <laughs> always. I am Hobart's really biggest fan. <laughs> Where can the listeners find you? Where can we buy all your books, all the things? Have you done an audio one of this yet? I have, yeah. So oh. you can get you can get difficult people in audio or Kindle format all over the world. You can get it in print in Australia and New Zealand at the moment. All my other books are available in print in most territories in the world and uh, setting boundaries and small habits are inv- available in audio as well. Oh. And you can find me at rebeccaray.com.au. That's my home on the internet. And I'm across the socials as at Dr. Rebecca Ray, but honestly, I'm super lazy. So I really only do like Instagram because that's <laughs> where the majority of my people are. And occasionally I post on LinkedIn when I remember and apparently I have a threads account that I continue to forget about. And yeah, so you find me at Instagram. And if you're still on Facebook, because I know Facebook's kind of uncool now for the young folk. Is it? Um, yeah, apparently it is. But <laughs> okay. if you're still on Facebook, I'm I'm on Facebook as well. But it's the same content that I put on Instagram because, you know, lazy, like yeah. social media is hard. Just click the button and I think it shares it on both Yes, that's right. that's right. I'm so yeah. with you though, Beck. I'm like, oh God, threads. Are you trying to like kill my mental uh, health? I know, <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. It's another platform. I was like, it's another platform I need to master. I don't think I could do it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Thank you so much for the chat. For all those listening, I will put all the links in our show notes of where you can find Beck and her books. But thank you so much again. It has been amazing. Thank you for having me. If you loved this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a review. If you know someone out there who would also love to listen to this episode, please hit the share button so they can benefit from it as well. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. If you would like to contact us, we are at ifillyourcup.com or you can DM us at ifillyourcup underscore via Instagram. You can find all of our services including our postpartum in-home care and our fill your freezer meal delivery service as well through both those channels. Thanks so much for listening.